Disclosure. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hey everyone, Ben Keedy, Wealth Crypto Podcast again. I got another great episode for you today with my buddy Ryan Phillips. So everyone is a friend here. I'm not sure if you guys have caught that yet. But Ryan is a former fund controller at State Street and is now at a very large public pension fund. He's on the institutional side. So that's kind of how he approaches everything. And we had honestly a great conversation. Um really thoughtful, uh, brought some interesting sort of viewpoints to what I think is missed a lot in in crypto and DeFi. So um, I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. And without much further ado, we will jump into it. Thanks. And here we go. What's up, Philly? How you doing, man? Hey, good. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Um, hey, everyone. Ben Keedy here again with uh, the Wealth Crypto Podcast. Got another awesome guest for you today, my buddy Ryan Phillips. Um, he is currently with a large public pension fund as an investment officer, but I'll let him tell you guys a little bit more about him. So, uh, Philly, you want to just kind of start with a little bit about your background and we can go from there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I started my career at State Street Bank and Trust um, as a fund accountant uh, for the uh, a large public pension funds equity um, suite of funds. And uh, after a seven-year career, kind of ended there um, as an assistant vice president of uh, overseeing the bank's institutional insurance clients. Mm-hmm. So managed um, the the variable annuity products by those institutional insurance clients and priced those and, and dealt with all the operational kind of back end with those funds um, left there and joined uh, kind of the, the middle office front office of a, of a large pension cl- uh, fund um, here in, in Sacramento and uh, have been there helping with that uh, for the last couple of years. Okay, cool. Um well, yeah, so where I'd like to take this particular conversation, obviously, is around the institutional side of, you know, the investment space and how it thinks about crypto DeFi and, you know, everything that's been going on the last, uh, you know, 10 years since Bitcoin's been incepted. Um, maybe, maybe just start a little bit with kind of, if you, if you can give us a little flavor on what your day-to-day is as an investment officer, and then... Um, and then, you know, kind of weave that into how the fund you work for is thinking about, you know, um, crypto and DeFi and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share what I, what I've experienced. And so I'm, um, I'm currently in the, in the compliance group within the fund, um, okay. working with all the different asset classes, uh, that are present, which is a unique kind of space, um, because a lot of the different asset classes are very siloed and have a very deep level of knowledge within that subject mm-hmm. matter, um, yeah. but they don't cross over too much into the other areas. And so in my, in my current role, I work with, with all of them. So we work with the global, okay. group, the fixed income group, the, yeah. you know, the mitigation strategies group, the commodities group, and, and all yeah. these different areas. 
Um, and so we, we kind of have a, a, you know, we know a little bit about a lot or get a, a little bit of sure, yeah, yeah. Into a lot of areas. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, and, and so what I can tell you is um, that, that crypto is, is definitely something that is discussed and has been for a while. Um, it's, these large public pensions don't move very fast, oh, yeah. and, you know, as, as by, you imagine, by design, right? Yeah. By design yeah. Um, and are bound by a lot of different policies and, and regulations mm. um, yeah. and, and board allocations really. And so sure. to, to make a direct allocation into something like crypto requires quite a bit of uh, bureaucratic change to the uh, yeah. system to allow for that allocation to occur. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I can say is that that these large public pensions are are and endowments are are definitely interested, and there are some that are in this space. Um, yeah, and, you know, and they're big big participants. Obviously, they, mm-hmm. they manage a lot of money. Yeah, um, but their adoption to this has been and is slow, and it is not. You know, these they're not all in this space at this point, and, and a lot of them are trying to figure out how to get an allocation to it. Uh, and maybe in an indirect manner, right? So sure. burning on managers or um, uh, different funds that that have exposure to this space to kind yeah. of passively uh, ensure that there's there's some exposure at the fund yeah. without For directly sure. having to to own the coins or figure out the custody solution component of it all and uh, the accounting and everything that goes along with the direct ownership. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, that could be a micro strat or. Grayscale Trust or any any number of those sort of indirect type of avenues. Yeah, so it's de- definitely owning equities that have crypto on their balance sheet, but it's also owning, um, you know, or, or hiring managers that that manage money, um, the funds money, uh, on a fee basis that may have a, a prospectus that allocates to okay. either crypto funds, uh, yeah. you know, maybe like like GBTC or or some private funds. Mm-hmm. Um, or directly uh, have exposure to to coins. Uh, okay. That's kind of how I've seen a lot of a lot of these larger kind of um, not so nimble ships to steer. Uh, you know, yeah. allocations to 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 this space thus far. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, maybe you would know, but are there any public? pension funds that have like a direct ownership and have like institutional custody at Coinbase or something like that? I don't know about direct <laughs> ownership and institutional custody. I mean, I know that there are, um, I've, I've read some articles on some public pensions that do have, you know, empl- uh, employee managers or, or hire managers that have direct yeah. exposure, but I'm not sure that any of these endowment funds or, cust- or yeah. <laughs> you know, pension funds have to have that bridge yet. Yeah. Um, but- as you've seen with, you know, micro strategy, maybe being the example, you know, the first kind of example we saw on the corporate balance sheet, um, the dominoes kind of fall after one or two decide to jump into that. Yeah. Yeah. Can be kind um, of yeah. I mean, it, it can be. Um, I mean, from where I sit, you know, I, I, I sell software to financial advisors and was one at one point, but even the the retail wealth advisors that I generally talk to kind of, it seems like 
it's like it seems 50 50 almost like a, a lot of them have kind of started to accept that like okay this is a thing and there's like varying degrees of like acceptance there right you've got the people who are like all in and ready to roll and then you've got a lot more conservative people but then the other side of that coin is people who just still don't buy it right. just don't think that it is you know an asset class i guess would be the word so i wonder do you see stuff like that too in the public space yeah, yeah, there's definitely still skeptics, um, certainly. Uh, and we, you know, one one luxury that I have at working for a large public pension is um, we get to talk to pretty much whoever, you know, we want to talk to. Yeah, Anyone everyone, wants to, to, get, to everyone yeah. wants to get inside and talk to you guys, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so with that, we a lot of different strategists and, and advisors come in and and uh, talk to us and kind of give us their thoughts on a lot of these things. And For there sure. are also in the same category as you mentioned, people that are pretty gung ho about this and people that are yeah. pretty skeptical about this, even yeah. in, in the advisor uh, space and and the the kind of strategist space. Um, so it's really interesting to to see that. And and I think one thing in my observations through crypto um, has been it's it's one of the best or I mean, I would challenge someone to, to find something that is a better trending asset in its first. What are we? Uh, 12 years of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what what would you think? Maybe like the Internet, I guess the Internet I mean, in the trend- 90s, right? I mean, trending in price. Oh, OK. I mean, okay. but so if you look at if you look at a financial asset and you follow its price action over, you know, since inception over a decade, mm-hmm. over a decade and a half, and you think about the the return that it's had over that long term cycle, sure. Bitcoin has to be one of the the best of all term trend right. of all time, and it doesn't have a lot yeah. of history. Like it's not a very yeah. old asset, but in yeah. that amount of time, it, its return and price action from a trending perspective is um, unmatched. And you know, yeah. the saying of the trend is your friend is does does not. Uh, you know, I, I think I think buying trending assets is is a wise decision. So that that, that actually brings up an interesting question for me. So like. Pension funds have had, you know, kind of trouble in the low rate environment to kind of fill your guys' obligations, right? Yeah. So, so how how do you guys kind of look at, you know, valuations and kind of where we're going in a forward looking sense and thinking about, you know, you've got, you know, a, a, a per- perpetual lifetime fund, right? Like, how do you guys think about fulfilling your obligations to? the fund 20, 30, 40 years from now in, as it relates to like, you know, where, where you expect the returns to be. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's a, it's a pretty complex process. So oh, for sure. uh, <laughs> the organization em- employs um, actuaries as well, and kind of uh, attempts to back into return profiles that are required based on, you know, ages of retirees and things like that. Um, yeah. and, and then that goes into the investment return that's needed to sustain that. And um, and you're right. The the environment um, with with the interest rates being held so low for for the amount of time they've been held that low uh, makes it difficult to guarantee certain return profiles. So um, a lot of these large public pensions have implemented a lot of other strategies to assist with augmenting that return. Is that uh, getting into like 
what you would call more traditional alternatives, private equity, private real estate, VC, exactly. stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, you know, I don't know how many of them have jumped down the, you know, let's, let's buy Bitcoin rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but they've definitely done, yeah, gone down the private equity, real estate, um, you know, aug- augmentation of, of returns. For um, sure. And then equities have obviously performed very well for a, a long yeah. time now. Um, yeah. So there's been different uh, allocation changes to that asset class. Um, okay. Okay. What a, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of just thinking the stuff. If you have stuff you want to drop in here, feel free. Um, what, what, like, what are the challenges that the public fund space faces? I would imagine there's a lot, particularly around crypto, like custody, I imagine would be a big one. Um, you know, the regulatory environment, all these things, but like what, I guess specifically from your compliance seat too, like where do you view the big challenges? Um, and then, you know, the flip side of that, I guess, big opportunities for crypto in the public space. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely the things you mentioned um, are our big, our challenges. And I think from a compliance perspective, it's um, the regulatory framework of this asset class is still in its infancy stage or, you know, mm-hmm. so it appears. And yeah. so if we're not sure how it's going to be regulated or who's going to regulate it, is it a commodity? Is it a currency? Is it, is okay. it a security? Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what is this really? Um, or is it this its own thing, you know, some, none of mm-hmm. things. and how is it going to be regulated and viewed? And um, so then it's difficult to put in a box because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't fit in a box very cleanly. Which doesn't so fit well with the public pension investing either yeah, right? Right, exactly <laughs> exactly and so until until it's maybe more defined or more you know fits better in in some sort of defined box uh, yeah. it's difficult for large public pension funds that have sure. uh you know different allocation requirements and different um bureaucratic kind of processes to to tackle it and really figure out how to solve it yeah so would uh, you, you kind of touched earlier when we were talking offline about, um, you know, you guys having unique access to all these strategists, what do they kind of, where do they kind of have the same take, at least as far as the public space goes, or what, what are some interesting takes you've heard from the strategists you guys have access to? Yeah. So, um, so a few things, I guess. Um, so, well, let me, let me maybe give you like a macro view that I have based on different experiences that I've, I've assembled, you know, not only through strategists and and advisors um, that I've, that I've have access to, or I've heard over the years, but also in my, in my personal kind of investing. Um, And that is, I think we're, we're entering a a new kind of uh, regime or um, very different, structural framework in our economy that is out of monetary dominance and into fiscal dominance. And what I mean by that is since the formation of like the FOMC and taking the, the dollar off the gold standard, yeah. then like a, you know, 50 year bull market in bonds and tech stocks, right? I For mean, sure. yeah. <laughs> like just perpetual deflationary environment by the yeah. Federal reserve it has two tools, which is lowering yeah. or increasing interest rates and, or uh, federal um, open market, you know, committee yeah. 
actions, which is more or less providing liquidity to financial institutions. Those are the two tools. Yeah. Yeah. When they provide liquidity to financial institutions, that doesn't give money to you or me to go spend at the grocery store. That gives no. that gives money to you know Tesla to to burn yeah. uh, you know until they figure out how to yeah and how to the car that then is deflationary for us that requires less inputs, less gas, or we get iPhones or we get this technology yeah. kind of sent back to us um, that is deflationary in nature through this kind of federal financial liquidity assistance that the Federal Reserve has has put. That's a, that's a generous way to put it for some people. <laughs> so that's been monetary dominance, right? We've been in this, yeah. era, this, this era of monetary dominance that has not, yeah. that has been deflationary in nature and allowed for rapid growth and kind of yeah. bull markets in certain areas. Okay. And so I would argue that we're, we're leaving that and we're entering into fiscal dominance, which is, okay. um, a period of time where the treasury and the fiscal response, i.e. the, the federal Congress. government. Yeah, Congress. <laughs> are, Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, are actually spending money into the economy that do get to you or me. And we do go okay. to the grocery store or wherever with that money. And that is inherently inflationary. And so yeah. we are moving from this, this secular deflationary environment to the secular inflationary environment. Um, that we haven't seen for a long time for, you know, 50 years, I would say we've been in kind of this deflationary bull market and in deflationary. Yeah. And so what I'm in, you know, what I am interested in to see what happens is how does Bitcoin and crypto, you know, generally perform in an inflationary environment. Yeah. Um, And you hear kind of these narratives about Bitcoin and I would challenge people just to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, to think and er- for themselves a bit and kind of observe if this is actually happening, which is, you know, uh, Bitcoin is a store of value or digital gold. That's very common. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a, a hedge to inflation. That's a very common. Yeah. And then yeah. it's a hedge to f- the fiat banking system, right? Yeah. Those are kind of the big common ones. Those are all the libertarian sort of sacred cows for Bitcoin. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm just saying those are really good stories that sound good and a lot of people kind of buy into it. And I would, I would just challenge people to, to determine if that's the case. And yeah. you, know, if you live in Zimbabwe and your local currency is being inflated away. Yes. Bitcoin has been digital. Sure. Gold. Yeah. That's way right. more stable. <laughs> um, so, so in this, you know, in this inflationary environment, I'm curious to see if Bitcoin is a hedge to inflation and mm-hmm. if, if the fiat banking system in a fiscally dominant environment um, gets a little bit out of control and inflation does run rampant. Is it a hedge to the fiat banking system? You know, in my, yeah, in tracking Bitcoin so far to me, and I don't know um, if everyone's going to like this comment, it's a, uh, it's levered beta. Like the correlation that it's had to the NASDAQ is, is pretty it's, remarkable. It's pretty tight. It's pretty tight right now. Like they, and it's, it has they, been. It's yeah. very tight right now, but it has been historically very tight. Um, yeah. pretty tight. It, it's tighter now than it has historically been, but it's been, it's been pretty levered beta for a while. And so if you're a wealth manager and you want to have a diversified portfolio for your clients, um, yeah. you want uncorrelated assets. Yeah. And Bitcoin it's been tough though. It's been for very any, for anything, right? So in this environment, 
uh, it's been really tough because the saving grace has always been bonds. Yeah. That's why you've got the 60-40 portfolio that has mm-hmm. been for so many years, more like 80-20 now probably. But you, you, know, you have 40% bonds, 60% equities. And when your equities go down, your bonds go up and vice versa. Yeah. Well, now they're, they're both going down. Yeah. Right. So what do you do? So, well, if you look at this environment, the things that are going up when those are going down is crude oil, natural gas, and the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Those are the correlated assets. Does Bitcoin ever fall into that category? Does Bitcoin become uncorrelated or even negatively correlated with stocks? NASDAQ or, 100 type yeah. thing. Yeah. And if not, where's, where's the value and the diversification of it in the portfolio? Is it just levered beta? If I wanted levered beta, I could just buy stock options on, you know, on the NASDAQ. And I'm yeah, not, yeah. I think you need to get off zero on, on Bitcoin. I have a lot of reasons why I think that's, that's important. But I'm just challenging some of these narratives out there as I, as I watch the correlation so tightly with legacy markets. Sure. So what... Uh, what have been people's responses when you bring this up? Because, I mean, to, to me, it does make sense. And I think that like correlation with NASDAQ and wh- is it is it actually, you know, this store of value that's going to kind of be like the digital gold and, you know, a down market? It doesn't look to be that way at the moment. So what, what do people kind of say when you bring this up to them? What are some responses you hear? Depends who you're talking to. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so so there are certain things that are kind of empirical fact and certain things that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, forecasting. And lately, yeah. like you said, it's been highly correlated. Like that's not. Yeah, you can just you see know, that. You can just see it. Yeah. In the last six months, Bitcoin and legacy markets have been incredibly correlated. So. Yeah. The question is, will it continue to be? Mm-hmm. And as this as this kind of backdrop or the macro framework changes from this deflationary, secular deflationary environment to this inflationary environment where duration assets like tech stocks likely do poorly, is Bitcoin going to also do poorly? And or and is that correlation going to break? So tech stocks, right? Like Kathy Wood's portfolio that has yeah. zero you know, uh, cash flow generating companies and, <laughs> yeah. and is all growth um, in, a, in an inflationary environment. Those stocks are not very attractive. Their valuations are, are not very attractive um, mm-hmm. in a deflationary environment where you can where you can discount their future cash flows back to present dollars at a, a you know, a very low discount rate. Um, those those duration tech stocks are interesting. So if um, if we do move a macro framework to this inflationary environment and those tech stocks do poorly. Bitcoin needs to, needs to break its correlation with the NASDAQ. Yeah. So, so, you know, I guess the center of all this is global central bank policy, right? So they're definitely kind of steering the ship here. Right. What is, I guess, sort of your sectors, again, public, public pensions kind of thinking about, you know, global monetary policy. Is the Fed serious? Um, I mean, shoot, that uh, CPI print we had last this last uh, week, Thursday, Friday, um, surprised everyone except for maybe Jamie Dimon. But <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't, it was, you know, it was hot and I think they're going to, with what, What's what oil's doing is um, and natural gas for that matter, uh, and then 
uh, rent inflation are, are yeah, uh, that's big one. significant drivers of, of what's going on. And I can't speak necessarily for, for how different public pensions are looking at this, but um, in my opinion, the Fed doesn't have the proper tools to combat inflation, right? The yeah. two tools that I mentioned do not cause inflation. Therefore, they cannot remove inflation. Yeah. And so the one, the one way that they can combat inflation is they can create a demand depression or recession or, or demand, yeah. demand destruction, let's say. Yeah, sure. They can make liquidity and the financial market so tight that um, it destroys demand through poor economic outcomes for. Which would be the hard landing that everyone wants to landing, avoid. <laughs> which is the hard yeah. landing. Yeah. So, you know, how serious are they about, about curbing inflation and how much can the citizens, you know, of this country and the politicians tolerate to tolerate? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is super interesting. It would appear that they're backed into a corner in a variety of ways. I, and I, I just wonder, will they hold, you right. know, like, it, it kind of seems like, you know, we've been at the party a long time. Now all the chairs are gone and somebody's just got to get stuck with it. And um, that, at least that's kind of kind of my take. Like, I think we're still kind of in the very early innings of this. And, you know, geopolitics just complicates it even more, right? Because, yeah, you know, like we're coming out of COVID and obviously there's a huge supply shock there, but inflation is is also not just the supply shock to the supply chains. You know, we had a global, you know, policy regime just printing money for over a decade. So, yeah. you know, how, I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this, but how we get out of it is unclear, right? Right. Yeah, and, and I would say that the the response to COVID on the fiscal side is what changed the game, right? The the trillions of dollars that were passed in COVID relief yeah. spending bills that that were direct payment transfers to the citizens of this country resulted in the inflation that we're seeing now. For it's sure, exacerbated by the geopolitical outcomes, you know, or events yeah. that are currently happening, no doubt. Um, but, you know, I continue to go back to the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing measures are not really inflationary. They create bank reserves, you know, for financial institutions to lend to the, the companies that, that then send us back deflationary products. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that fiscal response to COVID is what created the inflation. And my opinion is we're enter- we have um, pretty significant populism. Excuse me. Yeah. Can I get a glass of water quickly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Take your time, bud. And we're just taking a quick little break here, but... Yeah. Uh, Ryan's got some, some good points here. I'm curious to see kind of where he takes this um, or on the populism side, because, you know, any sort of policy response, which I think is kind of where he's going is obviously complicated by the politics. So and I'm just talking to myself here, but 
<laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, uh, just think, thinking out loud. But I'm curious to see where you kind of go with this on the populism side. Because yeah, uh, so so where I was going with that was I think um, I think we have a very populist society now that is very divided on a lot of different topics, and everyone just got a taste of of like free money, so to speak, from right. And that was not MT. Yeah, Turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> and they liked it. And um, and the Federal Reserve, I believe, is going to play like kind of a game of chicken with the uh, let's go as far as we can go until either something breaks or um, or the consensus, the masses can no longer kind of take it. Right. Yeah. And real quick, um, I'd love to see where you take this. So, like, I think everyone conversations that I've had, people are always kind of looking around the corner for that black swan, right? And people, obviously, you never know when the black swan is coming. That's what makes it a black swan. But um, one of my good buddies, who's former investment banker starting his own crypto hedge fund, does not see inflation as a huge risk, precisely because it's known. Like, everyone knows you got a problem here. (laughs) It's reported regularly. Um, I'd be curious to know what you guys might think is kind of lurking under the surface where something might actually break. Like, you know, 2008 was like the mortgage crisis. Things broke that people yeah. didn't see. So exactly. I don't know if you guys have done any stress testing or thoughts around, around that scenario. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, in conversations that have been had with, with different strategists and, and folks that have come into the, to the office, um, there's some concern around the U.S. Treasury market. So if rates, if, you know, if, if U.S. Treasury, okay. if rates continue to rise. Um, who funds that, the government? And, and who, who's the incremental purchaser of, of U.S. Treasuries? So yeah. China is a very large owner of, of our, yeah. our um, Japan is obviously a very large owner. A lot of, lot of foreign entities. And if the dollar continues to rise, and they have difficulty servicing their debt, they need to sell assets to get dollars. Yeah. And if they have to sell assets to get dollars, they're going to sell U.S. treasuries. And yeah. so there's this kind of this negative feedback loop of, of inflation, um, lack of demand for U.S. treasuries, and yeah. demand for dollars to service foreign debts that are going yeah. to require them to uh, sell more so- treasuries. Sell assets, yeah. So, and and then on top of that, the Fed's starting QT, so they're going to start yeah. selling their treasuries on the open. Yeah, they're just uh, letting them roll off here, right? So, who's going to buy them? Yeah, who's the incremental buyer of these of these treasuries? And do you happen to know off the top of your head how big of a buyer the the Fed has been of U.S. debt over the last like ten years or so? Like, I how much know. of the market are they responsible for owning? Yeah, I don't, and they have different. Um, they have different areas in the curve in which they're targeting. And then I know they've been buying yeah. mortgage-backed securities as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know at what rate. That'd be interesting. I'm going to make a note of that just to follow up on here. Um, so interesting. So that's, so in your guys' sort of game analysis, the treasury not working, not funding the government, like it, where, where do you guys take it from there? Or is that just kind of like, so there were there you know there were some um, some bright strategists that came in early in the year and said you know we're we're short bonds 
you know, the are we're yeah. gonna, we're going to be short bonds here tactically for a while, and and they kind of gave their their thesis as to why that was the case, and um, and that played out really well, right? I mean, yeah. bonds have have performed very poorly, uh, yeah, in six months, and so I haven't got an update on kind of what the end game is. I th- mm-hmm. um, I think there we could see a period in this QT raising of interest rates attempt to destroy demand and potentially even manifest like a, a recession kind of to curb inflation. Cause that's the only way that the federal reserve is going to be able to do this. Um, that we see maybe some, a, a small cup of coffee bounce in, in kind of bonds where they're, they catch a bid as a defensive asset. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think that that the populism kind of wins out, and they have to pivot uh, at some point. And yeah. inflation rears its head back up. And um, I don't think you know if eight and a half last month. I don't think we get back down to the two percent target that the Fed has. You know, I think yeah. we do come down. I don't think that we we get close to two before they have to pivot. And it's with the amount of debt in the system they need to run negative uh, real yields to inflate some of this debt away. They can't service the debt, you know, yeah. if real yields are, are positive. And so they need yeah. to have some inflation over, over interest rates so that they can kind of pass on some of this debt to, to, you know, kind of yeah, which is, which is, which is great for, I guess, uh, you know, the U S federal balance sheet and their credit worthiness but yeah. inflating inflating away everyone else's dollars is not great for you know your retiree for example on a fixed income right and that's when when kind of social unrest occurs typically if you look at this around the world in instances where inflation has been consistently a problem um, yeah you know you start to get into areas where where bad things get sk- happen yeah, it, things do get scary fast, right? Luckily, we we all live in the United States, which is yeah, you know, a blessing in so many regards. But um, absolutely, like, do you have you guys kind of thought about uh, like are there historical parallels that people are trying to draw between like what's happening right now versus any other times in history or you know places like uh, countries that have struggled with inflationary crises? Yeah, I follow, um, and this is just a personal thing. I follow a strategist. Her name is Lynn Alden. I don't know if you've heard of her. Okay, I don't know Lynn. Um, She does a really good job at uh, drawing parallels between this period and the 1970s. Okay. There was um, pretty prominent inflation and not much growth. So it was really a kind of a stagflationary environment. Yeah. Yeah. and she draws a lot of parallels between those those time th- this time and that time, and then the 1930s. But the, the 1930s were kind of wartime finance, right? We, yeah, you know the the war was going on, and uh, that required certain things to to occur. And in some ways, if you look at what's happening now, it's like we're at war with, or at least we were with COVID, right? We spent a yeah. ton of money and did different had different reaction functions to this pandemic as if, as if we were fighting a war in the sense yeah. of, of our response to it. And so she's also drawn some very interesting parallels between now and the 1930s. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, 
Let's see. I mean, you, you got anything? You're, you're got my head spinning here. <laughs> you've got, you've um, brought up some good points here. I think a couple of things that I just, um, you know, I, I, I said a couple of narratives that I think people should just think about. I think though, yeah. from a bullish perspective, um, Bitcoin is, is one of, if not the best trending asset since, you know, ever in its, in its life. And the trend yeah. is your friend. And I think you need to get off zero in regards to owning some, some crypto. Um, yeah. And I think that you and I and people, you know, similar ages as us grew up in it, it, this, this age of, of crypto and um, in, and I think that, that, that populism and adoption of new technologies and new systems that are decentralized and maybe more fair and have these different principles that certain people, uh, you know, that maybe have not participated in the wealth creation or wealth accumulation like the boomers have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are going to uh, gravitate to this technology and this, this, this ecosystem more and, and will, it will happen because the majority of the people want it to happen and believe in it. So yeah. I think the trend is your friend. And I think the demographics are your friend on, on crypto. I think that, I think that's a very fair point. Cause I think, you know, my interactions with the generation below us, like everyone, you just hear it more and more. Like I remember, you know, our mutual friend Tyler, when I, I first got kind of into crypto uh, fall 2017, um, back then, you know, CNBC thought it was snake oil, you know, right. these days have like totally changed. Um, like my wife and I were, uh, uh, getting massages the other day and some other people, uh, like in the waiting area, uh, one guy was just like talking about NFTs to his friend. You would never hear that and talking about, you know, just, uh, you know, digital ownership rights of, you know, turn your house into an NFT. I've told my wife about that. She thought it was crazy. Like, <laughs> uh, exactly. yeah, it seems, I mean, the anecdotal stuff is kind of hard to quantify, I guess, but I, it, in my life, it just seems like you hear about it more and more and more, particularly from the younger generation. Um, and they're way they're more very, online than we are. So, yeah. And they're very passionate. It's not like, uh, you know, oh yeah, that thing's neat. I like that. It's like, no, I love that. Like that yeah. thing is the thing that's gonna mm-hmm. do whatever, you know. And and then you, it's either a very thoughtful comment or it's a narrative that they heard on TV. But either way, it's it's um, there's a lot of passion in this space, and and I think that as if you know the fourth turning kind of happens, if you've yeah. familiar with that, um, heard of it, yeah. And, and, and our generation and then the boomer generation retires and our generation kind of moves into the, into the, um, you know, next positions of our lives. Um, we're going to come with these philosophies and ideals and thoughts and, and, uh, make them happen or, or, or encourage them to happen. Yeah. Do you, uh, kind of a tangent, do you think ready player one is real? Like the metaverse, like. Um, I, I struggle with it, but yeah, I don't know. I know, um, you know, I know there's been a lot of it, 2021 and then even here in 2022, there's been a lot of development in the NFT space and in the metaverse yeah. space and obviously what Facebook's doing and changing their name to meta, they're putting a big, yeah. big bet on that. Um, I don't know enough to have an educated yeah. comment on that, yeah. uh, but I'm watching it and I think it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, 
I mean, it's just interesting too to see kind of the institutional names get behind it. Like, I mean, Fidelity has been, and right. I was just reading an article today about how long they've been involved. Like, I didn't realize that uh, their CEO uh, had Fidelity back in crypto early. Yeah, and they they're you know they're mining. <laughs> like, she tells a story about you know trying to get it approved through you know her corporate purchasing program and her team's like, what, you want to buy these like random ass computers from China? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, no, it's a good idea. <laughs> and now, now she doesn't have to justify that obviously, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And those early adopters have been rewarded, right? I mean, and Bitcoin's yeah. done very well over that period. And um, I, I'm very interested to see how it does in, I think kind of a big, a big junction in, in kind of in the historical framework that's been going on, that seems to be changing pretty rapidly here. You know, like I mentioned with the monetary to fiscal dominance and, and kind of some of these legacy changes and how does, it, how does this all play out? You know? So, really- so yeah, I mean, it's, I, I didn't, I, I had no idea kind of where our conversations of what was going to go, but it's kind of interesting. You've got this like philosophical sort of tint to, uh, you know, governments and stages of history and all this stuff. Um, do you kind of feel like we're hitting just like a new wave of money in a sense like that? Like, you know, we, we pulled off the gold standard for better or for worse. Right. And that allowed certain things to happen, um, which I would, I mean, I'd probably say in aggregate, at least right now, it's been to everyone's benefit. We'll see if, there's some crazy thing that happens in the future just because we got off the gold standard, but it, it kind of feels like people are looking at our monetary system right now. And, you know, maybe just having the ability to create money out of thin air isn't a good thing for society and for government. And, you know, humans are emotional creatures. If we can just get it now, most of us are going to do it. So it, it to me, it kind of seems like there are factions of people really considering how the monetary system works and if what we're on currently is the way forward. Right. So I, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, no, I think we're at an inflection point and I'm curious. I think there's some structural things. There's so much debt in the system. So if you follow or read any of Ray Dalio's books, he's done an incredible yeah. job of um, yeah. documenting kind of the big debt cycle. And yeah. he calls it the big debt cycle. And there's all these little debt cycles until, you know, in, in the in the kind of timeline of, a, of the big debt cycle. And when you hit the big debt yeah. cycle, that is present when you have um, when you have too much debt in the system to do those monetary kind of outcomes because yeah. you get inflation and you have a populist. Yeah. Everything that we talked about today is very much Ray Dalio's framework. You have this yeah, populist yeah. majority that comes up, inflation kind of pulls its head and you can't, you, you can no longer spend or print money your way out of it. Um, or yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. he thinks we're at this kind of inflection point now in this big, big debt cycle with this much debt in the system that there's, there's structural changes that are likely going to take place, you know, yeah. and what does that mean? And, and what is the outcome and, and how does Bitcoin take, take a, uh, what's its role in this process? And mm-hmm. I've kind of thought, and I've, I heard, I've heard somebody mention this. Um, 
you know, what if the Federal Reserve, instead of buying all the bonds they bought in QE, I think it was like $11 trillion in QE4. What if they took like a fraction of that and they bought Bitcoin? They didn't tell anybody for a little while until they accumulated the majority of Bitcoin in circulation. And they said, okay, Bitcoin is now going to be the reserve currency, no longer the US dollar, right? And then Bitcoin would would be a million dollars a coin and they would own the majority of them. And it's, uh, you know, there's only so many that are minted as we know. And yeah, you reset the economic, maybe, I mean, you reset the, this, the, the, so, yeah. Yeah. So how, is that like another kind of version of like the trillion dollar coin or the right. similar, or, but instead yeah. of minting this trillion dollar coin and, and putting it into, you know, no, we're putting it in the box at the federal, yeah. Reserve, this would be actually, you know, purchasing um, a financial asset like Bitcoin and yeah. I'm they're doing this. So this is a good idea, but these are ways yeah. that they could, you know, you could think about yeah. structuring a new system if the legacy system is flawed and going to have a problem here. Huh? I, w- I wonder in practice what that would actually look like. Well, what's the yeah. market cap of Bitcoin? What's oh man off the top of my head. One market cap. Right. <laughs> I'm just thinking with with one of their QE programs, they probably could afford to buy every Bitcoin in circulation. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, they certainly could, like based on the money they've spent. I mean, I've I've kind of wondered if, if the Fed is just, just really wants to print this money and we're just going to do it to avert populism and keep everyone calm, like there is probably a greater effect to the populace just to send them money like like we kind of profiled like if if we had actually just sent all the qe money straight to households and took the you know did the same amount of debt i wonder where we would be today you know like when populisms i think inflation would, would be a lot higher you think just yeah. people just spending money as it comes in yeah because yeah. anytime you have direct transfer payment you know, transfers to individuals, they spend the money into the economy. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's playing with the house's cards, except yeah. it's, you know, your neighbor's tax dollars. But <laughs> So there'd be more dollars chasing fewer goods and the goods would be through the roof. So you th- do you think, I, I guess that would be almost an argument against MMT is that it would just create a hyperinflationary thing until it just goes, yeah, yeah. this just doesn't work. Yeah, I don't think... I. I think that results in like Zimbabwe style inflation. You're taking wheel yeah. of money to the grocery store to buy bread type of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know where this goes. I know that central governments are looking at and, and China, I think, has um, gone down the central digital currency, uh, like Fed coin type thing. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so. T- yeah, that's, that's what I'm not sure about how how these Federal Reserve, these federal systems, these centralized monetary systems um, are going to view Bitcoin as a competitor. They've had a monopoly on minting currency forever. forever. And how are they going to feel about some new decentralized, you know? Nonsense. They're gonna go. They're gonna go kicking and screaming, right? Like, yeah. I mean, they're they're not. No one. The U.S. government doesn't want to give up the power of the dollar. That is for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
I think the more interesting question is, is can they stop it? Right. Like, like, can they, could they legitimately just shut down Bitcoin? Like, what would that even look like? Just turning off the internet for everyone? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. I think it would be more means of um, unfavorable laws for taxation or ownership or, yeah. you know. Well, they did that with gold back in the day, didn't they? It was illegal to own gold at one point in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. They, like they, they, were, they asked people to come and turn it in for dollars yeah um, i don't yeah. know if actually- you, you, <laughs> you don't really want the government asking you to do things so. yeah yeah exactly because <laughs> if you say no what happens <laughs> yeah what are the consequences of that <laughs> yeah um, so i don't know what that you know i'm not i don't i'm not sure they kicked any door down any doors down and, and confiscated anyone's gold but there was definitely that period of time in which they they wanted people to turn it in and that was a competitor yeah. that was a competitor to their their monopoly for sure um what like uh did i'm curious like so when i was at morgan stanley like i, I was on a decent sized little team and i always thought it was super fun to listen to all the strategists come in because you know they a lot of them are fairly consensus, but occasionally you'd get some of those guys and they're coming in and just showing you something super interesting. Um, have, have you seen anything really interesting the last year or so? Um, you know, the, the short bonds call at the time was in January was pretty interesting. I thought yeah, because they had not done very well at that point. And I was like, you know, this is, yeah, we're gonna enter into a slowdown. Yeah, and like yeah. This, bold this strategy. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, some strategy to short bonds. It's like a forty-year bull market. Um, yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Um, there's there's been quite a bit of bullishness on EM if inflation continues. Okay. So um, so these emerging markets that are commodity producers and food and agricultural producers, um, okay. that if inflation is going to be persistent those commodity producing countries are going to do well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think between now and then, if there is, uh, you know, a recessionary period or, or tightening of liquidity via the Fed, those countries are going to struggle. But on the back end of that, when they pivot, um, assuming that that happens, those those EM countries that are that are rich in commodities and resources, natural resources are likely going to do well. I'm glad you brought that up because this we kind of moved past this, but I was curious what what you'd think. Um, you, you see Russia starting to commoditize its currency, right? Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that. Uh, you know, where where's your kind of take on on that? Because it's, it's you know thinking about a gold standard again. Where does Bitcoin fit in as like you know a commodity asset in a basket of currencies like? What's what's your take? Yeah, so I think the currency market's super interesting. So the ruble, as of today, is the best performing currency globally, which yeah. is shocking, right? When you think about the sanctions and everything that uh, NATO countries attempted to do to yeah. sanction Russia, um, they're an oil, they're an oil economy, and oil is at what a hundred and. 40 a barrel well, the way the way what their comments were were okay but if you want to buy our natural gas you have to buy them in rubles well yeah you pay us directly and a lot of those european countries specifically 
you know, they, they're, they're paying. Like they can't, they can't. If they want to keep the lights on, they're going to, they have to, right. Germany, Germany is so reliant on, on Russian gas. They, I think would, uh, they, at this point, they have to have it, and they need to invest from. In the, well, yeah, they, they they made a bad bet by getting in bed with with Vlad, obviously. Um, and not it was nuclear, not investing. In well, nuclear yeah, well. yeah, it wasn't. It's not the most resilient thing to outsource, you know, your country's, you know, critical energy infrastructure. So exactly, yeah. So the ruble's done very well um, because of the requirements of different European nations and and non-European nations to to purchase gas um, from Russia, um, and also the Japanese yen has been really interesting. So, uh, what what are they up to? Because they seem to they want to they want to ease all day. It seems. Yeah. So they've you know the 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 Japanese um, what's their. Uh, What's their what's their what's the equivalent of the Federal Reserve there? Um, uh, um, shoot, is it just the Japanese Central Bank? Yeah, it, it has a name. I forget what it's called. But they uh, the, their their balance sheet they own I think eighty percent of the the bonds that are in in fluctuation there. Bank of Japan. Bank of Japan. Bank of Thank Japan. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So they're buying every single bond that comes on the market at at the destruction of the currency. Yeah. Well, so, and, and it's and it's not just uh, government bonds too, isn't it? Corporate and also uh, their public stock markets as well. Probably, um, they probably have like an equivalent of a QE type thing in, yeah. in that regard. Um, but the they've decided there is an interest rate level that they are not willing for their bonds to go over, and any time the interest rates hit that level, they buy every single bond. Yeah. And so that has that has destroyed the currency. For sure. Um and if you look, I mean, if you were to pull it up on a chart, it, it's gone straight down, uh like down 15% since the end of February, which for a currency move is is just insane. Oh, that's nuts. Oh my gosh, look at this. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, so and that's just that's just the current that's been yeah. the, the way that the market has dealt with them. Um, purchasing every single bond at at whatever interest rate they they haven't to, they did to to what end though do do you happen now I don't yeah yeah I don't I don't know what the end game is or yeah it's super in, super interesting times yeah <laughs> right so the currency market's super interesting um, I think it will continue to be um, the dollar's obviously been performing very well yen very poorly ruble very well. Yeah. The other thing that I found really interesting, and I thought this would be um, a very strong bullish case for potentially for Bitcoin, was um, the U.S. government uh, seizing Russian um, reserves. So, oh yeah, that they, was nuts, right? So they basically just said, like, this money that these are ours, right? Are no yeah. longer yours, right? This is ours now, and um, so. Sovereign nations around the world saw that and realized that, okay, our reserves maybe aren't safe too, right? If we yeah. do something that that um, another nation decides is not okay, and that's an appropriate response with no judicial, you know, no court of law, no vote, just yeah. happens, um, then we need to diversify. So what they've done is they've diversified and, and, and uh, these foreign nations have, have decided to 
own U.S. you know the equivalent of U.S. Treasuries in in all like the G10 nations, for example. Yeah. So then there's no centralized risk with one country. Um, and I was and and Russia said that they were gonna uh, buy gold, right? They were gonna hold their reserves in gold, and no. gold got a pretty significant bid. But I thought that was a fantastic use case for Bitcoin. You know, what if, sure. yeah. what if uh, Russia decided, okay, you know, you can't seize my Bitcoin. No, you know. Yeah, I'll we move. own these. Like, yeah, we own these. We take yeah. self-custody of it or whatever they do. Yeah. Um, Held uh, in like the KGB, like <laughs> basement somewhere. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, or maybe and, Vlad yeah. just keeps it in his pocket. Just got a little like USB drive just right there. A little ledger in his pocket. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I thought that was an interesting outcome and could have kind of led to diversification into crypto. Um, but, you know, I didn't really, that hasn't happened. I mean, it, it could be a state secret too. Who knows? They could very well have done that. Right. Sure, like, sure. I, I think, I think that does go back. I'm glad you brought that up. Like, when they did seize bank reserves, I was like, wow, that is an extreme move. Right. Um, but then it did, to your point, wake everyone up to like, what, whose rails are these on? Like, do we actually control these or not? And right. I, I, we're probably still in the very early innings of this, but I would assume 10 years down the road, all these major, even our allies are probably looking at where their assets are held. And it's like, what is the actual risk here of being on a U.S. dominated system? Right. And there's been reports as an outcome of that, specifically that China has um, prepared for instances in which there could be sanctions done on them and they're diversifying in U.S. assets. Yeah. There's been some reports of that. But so that's, you know, that that's a big geopolitical development that um, I think kind of went under the radar. Oh, well, I mean, the every time they hit you with something that everyone's supposed to pay attention to, I'm always kind of looking for what are those things that are just we're getting distracted by. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, well, shoot, man, uh, we are about an hour here. Do you want to start to kind of wrap it up? Do you have any other like final thoughts here? Yeah, no, I don't. I thank you again for having me. We went a lot of different directions. Uh, sorry, I know I, I jumped quite a bit. You know, I I think um, I think we're at a peculiar time generally around yeah. you know all assets, and yeah. this is a time to uh, maybe be in you know heavily or more heavily than you would be in in cash or you know kind cash of is an asset different. these days. I yeah, mean, but, you know, your cost of carry is about, you know, eight and a half percent, but <laughs> yeah, it's inflating away. But, you know, I, I think the alternatives right now are are unsure and there's there's quite a bit going on. And, I, you know, I'm not sure this this bear market's over. Um, we may just I don't think it is like with this most recent inflation print. They're going to keep they're going to keep parking hard for the summer. Yeah. I'm curious what happens when the midterms roll around. Yes, that's the the, pol- the politics of the situation can't be ignored, right? Yes. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> right? Lots going yeah. on. Yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, to talk again in six months or a year and see what. Oh, for sure. Well, yeah. Uh, anytime you want to come back, man. This was great. Like I loved uh, 
the historical sort of philosopher tint to it as well. Uh, I think that's super interesting. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Cool, bud. All right. Well, we'll talk soon, but uh, thanks. Later. Peace, bud.